Empire, Matthew chapter 5, The Law of the King, part 2. Hey, a quick update from Corey Nichols, who was with us last Sunday for Destiny Rescue. He wrote a note, Pastor Michael, Brenda, it was wonderful to see you all, to be with your great team at Living Truth. You are a family, and you make me feel so welcome. Thank you, exclamation point. Uh, I appreciated your generous hospitality. We had a chance to go out to lunch. He enjoyed the fellowship. He flew back to Atlanta middle of last week. He said, I just want you to know on Sunday I was blown away by the generous response of God's people at Living Truth. There were 20 individuals and families, individuals slash families, that became rescue partners. This monthly total amount was $930 per month. If you multiply that by 12 months, that is $11,180. We also received $3,530 in one-time gifts. The total impact last Sunday was $14,690. Praise God. He said, Living Truth is rescuing lots of children regarding trafficking, helping them to heal and come to know Jesus and step into their destiny. I'm humbled and grateful for what God did at Living Truth and continues to do with your partnership Until we meet again, tons of blessings, Corey. I responded to Corey by saying to him, I'm never surprised at the generosity of this fellowship. You guys are amazing. Uh, Your love, your commitment uh, to the truth and putting feet to your faith really uh, speaks well. And uh, it is a testimony really all around the world. When we think about the impact of our missionaries, evangelism, our radio ministry, Ministries like Destiny Rescue that we support, uh, it, it is an amazing testimony. So praise the Lord. I'm, I'm proud to be part of what God is doing here. And I want to tell you on a little heavier note, I got a text last night from the Gortney family. They were part of Calvary Chapel, Ontario uh, for 16 years, working with a pastor there. His name escapes me at the moment. He went home to be with the Lord yesterday. Um, and the Gortneys went over to Calvary Chapel, Ontario to, to be there to bring comfort and encouragement and love. Um, they just asked that we keep that church family in prayer. When a senior pastor, or any pastor for that matter, passes away, uh, it is a hard thing, and we don't think about it much perhaps, but that church is hurting, and so we're gonna lift up uh, Calvary Chapel, Ontario and just pray for them want to add also, of the many things that we can pray for, uh, our beloved Chappie has been in the hospital. Uh, he's been battling cancer for quite some time. Chappie, I don't know if you're getting a chance to watch right now, but we're going to lift him up as well. Would you pray with me? Father, first of all, we want to rejoice in what happened with Destiny Rescue last Sunday. We pray many blessings on Corey, on that ministry, Lord. Thank you for what Corey is doing and what Destiny Rescue is doing all around the world. What a privilege to fight the good fight and stand side by side with them. We give you praise. Lord, our, our second prayer request is for Calvary Chapel, Ontario. Uh, with the loss of a senior pastor, what can we say other than, Lord, would you pour your mercy, your stabilizing grace into that fellowship? Would you bring comfort? May they grieve with hope. I know there's some others in this congregation that are grieving this morning. Uh, losses, but... Lord, I pray that they would grieve with hope. And thank you that the gospel goes beyond the the grave. We have an eternal hope in Christ, and we give you thanks. And Lord, we want to take a moment to lift up Chappie. We pray over him. We pray for strength and comfort and healing. There are others in this room that are sick, uh, that have loved ones that are sick, and they're concerned. And we just pray that you pour out mercy in every situation, Lord. You, You know everyone. We don't know everyone, but... You know what's needed. You know where comfort and strength and healing is needed. So we pray over those situations that you'd minister, you'd pour out your grace, and that we would lean into you by faith and trust in you in every season of life. And as we turn our hearts now to the Sermon on the Mount and the sermon of our great King, the longest one ever recorded in the New Testament, we pray for understanding. We pray that we would respond in a way that pleases you, that we'd have ears to hear what the Spirit says to your church in this hour, and that we would respond to it, Father, in a way that brings you glory. In Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So we're we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are doing a part two. 
And we're going to read the text together. We're going to read verses 17 through 20 to reset the foundation. If you're able to stand with us, why don't you stand? And then we're going to read the section uh, that's next ahead of us, which is verses 31 through 37. Matthew 5, beginning in 17. Jesus is speaking. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Matthew 5, 17. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes, and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Skipping down to verse 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity or sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil." Well, Lord, you preach this sermon, so we want to have ears to hear what our king says to us. I believe this is about not only the fulfillment of the law, but about kingdom priorities and kingdom ethics. And we want to see what our king has to say. So would you help us to tune in and to hear your voice beyond the voice of a man? We know your word is living and powerful. It will do its work. The one requirement is that we simply be good soil, that we Receive it by faith, so help us to do that. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. The Law of the King, part two, the famous Sermon on the Mount. I mentioned in the prayer, this is the longest recorded sermon in the New Testament that Jesus gave, and Jesus has addressed two things so far to bring clarity to what we would know as the Torah. In the Hebrew picture language, Torah or the law, means to hit the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. The Torah is to hit the mark. But we all have missed the mark many, many times. And so the question becomes, how are we to understand what Jesus is saying about our relationship in our contemporary moment as New Testament believers, for all of you who have believed in Messiah and Christ, what is our relationship to the law? How are we to understand Jesus' sermon and make sense of it? Questions like, if Christ fulfilled the law, is any of it still applicable to us or to me or my family? If so, what parts and why? What does the king have to say about this and how can I understand it? We've done this before. We've taught through the book of Romans and Galatians and other places, but I want to reiterate the foundation so that we all make sure we've got the right foundation. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law in two primary ways. One, he fulfilled the ceremonial or ritual law. And you say, what's that, Pastor Michael? That is the sacrificial system recorded in the Old Testament. You can think of the book of Leviticus. You can think of other places where sacrifices are outlined in the Bible. You can even think of the Feast of Passover when the lambs were killed and their blood was shed. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the ceremonial or sacrificial system. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. He fulfills that to the full. It's paid in full. There's no more temple in Jerusalem. There's no more animal sacrifices going on. And there is no need for any more animal sacrifices. In fact, the book of Hebrews, the writer says, if you go back to those things, the blood of bulls and goats, they can never take away your sin And there will not be a sacrifice for your sin if you go back 
to the old things. They've been fulfilled. The temple fell in AD 70. It hasn't been rebuilt again. There's no sacrifices going on. And there's no need for any more sacrifices. Key verses. Hebrews 10.10 and Hebrews 10.14 say this. Essentially paraphrasing this idea. Christ by his one sacrifice has forever perfected all of his people. One sacrifice for all time for all of us. Amen? Amen. It's paid in full. God is no longer counting your sins against you. They've been nailed to the cross. Praise the Lord. We don't need those sacrifices. We don't need to keep redoing it over and over again. It happened once. It's paid in full. Secondly, Jesus fulfills the moral law. How so? Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live. He perfectly loved God and others the way that we're supposed to. He morally fulfilled the law. Therefore, Christ is the living example of what it means to live out the Torah, to live out the law, to hit the mark. And something that Jesus has done for us, and this is where I would say we still have responsibility to the Lord, is he's provided his spirit now so we can fulfill the law. I want to show you one key verse. It's in Romans, which is a little bit to your right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you don't want to turn there, just write it down. This is Romans 8.1. Paul has been talking about the law. He's been talking about the gospel, righteousness by faith, all of those things that many of us are familiar with. And he's talking about his personal relationship to the law, even though he knows that he's fallen short of it. He says these famous words, Romans 8.1. He says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. It wasn't the, the law wasn't the problem. It's that I am weak, we are weak. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law, note it, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to what? To the Spirit. Now, the first fruit of the Spirit is love, and now you and I have the ability to fulfill the moral dictates of the law, which are simply this, to love God with everything that we are and to love people the way that we're supposed to love them. And we get the empowering presence of the Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to send the helper to you. It's to your advantage that I go away. He did the ransom for us. He resurrected for us, justified us, and then he sent help from heaven so that we can fulfill the law. If you flip over just a few pages to Romans 13, you can see a good statement on this fulfillment. He's talking about our relationship with others, 13.8 Romans. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, those are two things Jesus brought up in the first sermon we studied. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is, mark it, the fulfillment of the law. Now that's written to a New Testament church in Rome who's called upon to fulfill the law. Not by the flesh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're all going to fall short of that, but hopefully we're moving in the right direction. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, the ritual law. Let me, as you turn back to the Matthew 7 for a moment, let me just say something else about a few other laws that we can think of that were not moral per se. Think of, for example, the covenant of circumcision given to Abraham in the book of Genesis. That was supposed to be a perpetual covenant. Well, that was the symbol that fulfills the spiritual reality. Now, we are circumcised where? In our hearts. Now, there are Jewish people and there are other people who still, still practice circumcision, but God's concern is not the physical sign, but the circumcision of the heart. That's where a, a law or a covenant is fulfilled from a symbol to a spiritual reality. Take, for example, the Sabbath day. When people argue 
are God's people still under the law, the Ten Commandments, let's say, in the modern age? The one that comes up the most is the Sabbath day. And some people will say, if you don't worship on a a Saturday, or technically a Friday night to a Saturday night, you're breaking a commandment. But from the physical sign to the spiritual reality, Jesus is our Sabbath, amen? He fulfills the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if you want to worship on Saturday, that's not a problem. In the book of Romans, Paul will say, some people esteem one day above another, whatever, that's fine. But they are not salvation issues. The Sabbath has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is our rest, amen? So that, those are a couple other examples as well. So what is our relationship now to the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 7, 12, I gave you a key verse that is really a synonymous way of saying what Jesus said in Matthew 22. What did Jesus say in Matthew 22? That love is the fulfillment of the law, that the law and the prophets hang on two commands, to love God and love your neighbor. This is a synonymous way to say it. It's found in Matthew 7, 12, a very key verse to Mark. In everything, Matthew 7, 12, therefore... Treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, simply put, that's just another way to say love people the way you want to be loved. We all want to be treated with love, amen? We all want to be treated with respect. Now, in Matthew 23, 23, one more key verse, and then we'll come back to the text. I want to show you one more thing. We touched on this last time. But I believe that Jesus is giving us categories to understand uh, layers of love, if you will. Look at Matthew 23, 23. He's uh, addressing the hypocritical religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, woe to you, 23, 23, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, actors, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You're good tithers. You fast, he says in other places, but you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law. What are they? Justice, category one. I would argue that justice, he's already touched on when he brought up murder and adultery in Matthew chapter five. Let let me walk this out for a second. Jesus said, you've heard that it it was said you shall not murder, but I say, don't hate because hate is murder of the heart, if you will. So Jesus gives us, this is another way that he fulfills the law. He gives us the fullness of what it means. He fills in the shell of the phoniness of the religious leadership. The word fulfill could have the idea of a vessel being filled up with water, or let's say grain, or a net with fish. And in another sense, Jesus is fulfilling or showing us the depth of the law. He's saying this is what the law is all about. Murder could be committed in hatred in your heart. Now, it's not the same thing. You don't say, well, I hated the person, so I might as well kill him. No, Jesus is not saying that, all right? But he is saying on a spiritual level in your heart, you've broken a command by hating. He says adultery is lust. If you lust after another person's spouse, you've committed adultery where? In your heart. Now, Lust is not the same as the physical act of adultery. But on a spiritual plane, it's still the breaking of a commandment. I want you to think about categories in Matthew 23, 23. We're going to imagine words and we're just going to draw kind of a little uh, lines down to get the categories. What, What love is all about, what the law is all about is justice. None of us want to be treated unjustly. None of us want to be murdered None of us want a family member murdered, and nor do I want anybody hating me in their heart. None of us want someone to sleep with our spouse, nor do we want someone lusting after our spouse. Amen? We want to be treated justly and fairly. Category number one in Matthew 23, 23, linking to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want you to see the second category. It's mercy, That will come at the end of Jesus' sermon, which will be for next time. Notice the third category is faithfulness. Now, faithfulness will deal with the next two issues. And I know I'm giving a lot to you, but let me just try to slow down and set this up. 
As Jesus is bringing up these issues, he's covering six things. He covered murder and adultery. In this particular section, this is not by my choice, by the way, this is Jesus' sermon, he deals with divorce and oaths or vows that people take. And Jesus is going to address the topic, look at Matthew 23, 23, of faithfulness. That's the broader category. Love is about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This is a good way to walk out layers of what love means. Love is not, back to Matthew 5, necessarily a feeling. We all enjoy the feelings, and it's wonderful to have feelings of love. But love is a decision Love is how you treat people. You can tell somebody all day long that you love them, but if you treat them poorly, they shouldn't believe you because you've demonstrated in your actions and perhaps even in some of your words that you don't really love them. Love is how you treat somebody. That's how Jesus can tell us love your enemy And you can still love them. You might not have the feelings, but you can still treat them with dignity and respect. You may lack feelings for a spouse at this moment or a family member or someone who's a friend or a business partner or a neighbor, but you can still treat them with dignity even if the feelings aren't there. That's what Jesus says is the law and the prophets. And he says, by the help of the Holy Spirit, whom he would send, we will have the help from heaven to do what he says. You've heard it said, but I say to you. I want to know what my king has to say to me. And after setting that foundation that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill, he gets into murder, to adultery, and now to divorce. And I would say to you that these are all interlinked, but the broader category is faithfulness. Why did Jesus go here? This isn't one of the Ten Commandments, although there's implications from adultery and not coveting someone else's wife. Why did he go here? In verse 31 of Matthew 5, let's read the verse. He says, it was said, or you've heard that it was said, or maybe you hear this round town or in the rabbinical circles of academia. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Maybe you've heard this, and what is this based on? This is one section in the Old Testament. If you're taking notes, it's Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. This is the only place where we find this in the Old Testament. And this idea of a certificate of divorce was being addressed by two schools of rabbis, two uh, strains, if you will, or uh, teachings of rabbinic schools. This would just be like famous rabbis of the day who wrote on this. One was a school of Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L, and one was a school of Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-A-I. The school of Hillel said this, if your wife over-seasons your food, over-salts your eggs, undercooks your eggs, or if you find another woman that's more desirable to you, you may divorce your wife. Basically, for any reason at all, All you need is a certificate, which you can get on the internet, uh, for $9.99, right? Now, you all know the internet wasn't around there at that time because Al Gore hadn't invented it yet. But anyway, I digress. So you get this certificate, and what would happen? This is my understanding of how they would do it. The guy would take the certificate. He would take it to his rabbi. Let's say it's Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel would say, what's the problem? Oh, well, I don't like the way she looks anymore and she doesn't cook my food right. And he would stamp the certificate, if you will, and the guy would go home and say, honey, bye-bye. He would send his wife away. Now, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian who was involved with Rome and wrote about the first century war and so forth, said these words. Women had no right to divorce in that culture, only the men. So if your husband came home with a certificate of divorce and said, you're out of here, and Rabbi Hillel says it's kosher, you're out, then the woman would have to fend for herself in that culture. What were her options? 
She probably was not the breadwinner because she probably stayed home to raise children. And she was sent away with basically maybe even going into poverty. What were her options at that point? Well, her options were to try to find another man to marry so she could be taken care of. Now, this will make sense of the next verse. Take a look with me. This is verse 32. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. You got that? He puts her in a situation in a first century context where her options are few. And this could be a contemporary example. A woman is a stay-at-home mom. The husband decides he wants a divorce. She's not worked because she's raising his children. Now he wants a divorce, so he boots her out. He's got another woman in his life, and what does she do? Well, she's got to try to scramble to pick up the pieces. So this could be very contemporary as well. Jesus is addressing a very specific situation happening among the religious elite of the day. In fact, some of the people standing listening to his sermon may have been on their sixth or seventh spouse, felt that they were okay according to the law because the rabbi had stamped their certificate and made it official. Now, the school of Shammai was a more conservative school. They said, he said, there was only one reason to divorce. That would be sexual immorality or adultery. I've heard some teachers say that they said you have to divorce as a result of that. And that obviously is not biblical. We'll get to that in a moment. But that is what's going on. There will be a wider teaching that Jesus gives on this topic in Matthew 19. So I'll save some of the details for a sermon ahead of us. But I just want to say this to you, that essentially what Jesus did in Matthew 19 is say this. Moses permitted you to do this, certificate of divorce, because of your hard hearts. But this was not God's plan from the beginning. God made them male and female. He'll quote from Genesis twice in Matthew 19. And said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, Jesus makes an appeal back to Genesis. And let me suggest to you that in a New Testament picture, Jesus has told us what marriage is about. Marriage is a picture of what? Christ and his church. The king and his bride. So if we have a flippant attitude about marriage and divorce, then what we do is muddy the picture of Christ and his bride. Now we live in a broken world, and as I look around the room, and I know people are watching and will listen to this later, there is a lot of hurt. And this particular word, divorce, stirs up all kinds of emotion. Because we live in a culture where divorce has become largely the norm. And some of us have been in very difficult situations, very complicated situations. And I do not think that Jesus is giving a full teaching on all that goes with this topic right here. I think this is a very specific, targeted address. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, 7, if you're taking notes, Paul says that if an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse, the believing spouse can let them go, and they're not in bondage in that situation. What does that mean? I believe that means they're free to remarry. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, releases people who had an unbeliever leave them, maybe because of their faith or whatever might be going on. And they are no, no longer bound to that marriage. So there's at least one other additional reason for divorce. Amen? Now, let's take some very complicated issues. Let's say that there's a relationship where there is abuse going on. Or let's take an extreme example. Let's say that a woman's married to a man and he goes off and he murders seven people, gets a lifetime sentence, no death penalty. He's in prison for the rest of his life, convicted murderer. He didn't commit adultery. So does she have to stay married to him for the rest of her days 
and he's never getting out, and is she bound to that man? Let me just say to you that good scholarly minds have really wrestled with, is Jesus saying it's this and this and that's it? Or are there implications of situations? Let me, let me say to you, if you're a pastor or a counselor and you've read these words of Jesus and you get a difficult situation, we can't be so quick to make blanket statements. Because the way that you would treat others hopefully is the way you would want to be treated if you were that woman with the murderer in prison for the rest of his life. So we have to make sure we're wrestling with the scriptures and even the implications of the scriptures. On the other side of this, I would say to you, if we get too uh, you know, willy-nilly with what the Bible actually says and people are mar- marrying and divorcing left and right, and let me just say to you that from a big picture standpoint, most divorces do not happen because of extreme cases. Amen? Most divorces happening in America have to do with things like this. I'm dissatisfied. We have irreconcilable differences. I don't like the way the person looks anymore, treats me anymore. We lack romance. We lack intimacy. You can make your list. And if one of those hits your list, let me just say that you made a vow. Do you remember going to the altar, for those of you who are married, and on your wedding day, you're not even really listening to the preacher, which I have personal issues with, but that's a second, <laughs> secondary issue. And you go up to the altar, and this, the pastor runs through vows. Uh, all right. You promise to love. You promise to be committed to fidelity, to honor and cherish. Uh, I love you for the best days and for better and for Worse. So a couple comes into a pastor's office, Alistair Begg telling the story. They want marriage counseling. And they all they start, you know, well, this is what's going on, and if only, and if she, and if he, and, and this and that. And Alistair Begg says, do you remember the vows that you took? For better or for worse? Right now, how would you categorize your marriage? For worse? All right, well, you still have your vow. <laughs> have a nice day. Alistair said that's why people never come to him for counseling. I don't recommend that that's what we do. There's some very real issues that we have to work through in our marriages, right? But marriage is a picture of the king and his bride. And our call is to love the way that God has loved us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves his church. Now, if the Lord only loved me on my good days, I have a lot of worse days during the week. Anybody else out there? Maybe your last week you had some bad days. God doesn't only love you on the good days. He loves you because he's decided to love you and you're in a covenant with him, the new covenant. So Jesus is addressing a very emotional topic, a topic that later when they ask him about it, it's a question to try to trap him. There were liberal views and hardline views about it, but all that really matters to us is what Jesus says because he's my king, amen? And my call is to please him. Now let me say something else about this idea of infidelity because Jesus does say in verse 32, look at it again, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity, the uh, NIV has marital unfaithfulness, ESV ground on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let me talk about adultery for a second. Um, I know these are not easy topics, but here's where we are. Let's say adultery has happened in a marriage and a spouse has been unfaithful. While that could be grounds for divorce, that doesn't necessitate divorce. In other words, couples can make it through infidelity. As hard as it is, as much as it does fracture trust, trust can be rebuilt with repentance, with restoration. You don't have to divorce because there's been adultery. Jesus is saying this is grounds for divorce, but it doesn't mean you have to divorce. Go back with me to the book of Hosea. Most of you know Hosea was a prophet. He was called to marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him. And she did just that. He had a couple kids with her. And then she went off and got herself in trouble. 
She was with other men. Some believe that she became a prostitute. And in Hosea chapter three, Hosea literally has to buy her back. Some believe from a pimp. Some believe from getting herself in trouble where she was sold into slavery. Whatever it may be, she was unfaithful. He has to show up at at this place and buy her back. He pays for her again. And then she comes home and he says these words. I'm paraphrasing. This is Hosea chapter three if you wanna go back and look at it this week. He says, now that you're home and I've bought you back, please don't cheat on me anymore. And God says that he called Hosea to marry a wayward wife to illustrate his love for his people Israel who were constantly going wayward and he continued to reach out to them and love them. This is captured in Hosea 11.8. And I believe the Lord laid this verse on my heart, perhaps for someone. God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? Could I put it this way? Hosea 11.8, how can I send you away? Even though you cheat on me, even though you go and worship other false gods, even though you put other priorities before me and hurt my heart, how can I send you away? And I really believe that we need to let those words sink in a little bit because those are the words of, of our king. That is his love. I know there are many complicated situations, but I just want to say to you, we shouldn't take a flippant attitude either because Jesus' words are very straightforward. And you might say, well, what if I was a believer married to another believer and we divorced and there was no adultery and nobody abandoned the other person? What do I do now? Well, you repent and you do your best to repair things as is appropriate to the situation. I wish... I could fill in all the the blanks here, but I'll just say this. If they've remarried another person, I don't believe the Bible's calling you to divorce a spouse and go back to the first marriage and all of that. I think Deuteronomy 24 makes that clear. But I think we should be thinking hard about our vows, about what we say before God when we invoke the name of God and not take them lightly. Because Jesus' words are pretty solemn And if we're going to stand before our king and be responsible for what we vowed to, would to God that we take it a little bit more seriously than perhaps many do in the church culture and our culture. I can't do a more exhaustive treatment. I'll do more on Matthew 19. But let's move to the second category. That is vows. And you can see how this will tie to what we just talked about. Again, you've heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. This is the gist of several Old Testament texts, Leviticus 19, 12 being one of them. The ancients were told, don't make a false vow. Now, people would make vows in the name of the Lord, and that was actually encouraged in the Old Testament, to take his name, to invoke the name of God, and make a vow. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5 teaches something important, and I think it's worth us turning there. Let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, which is right in the wisdom literature next to the book of Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. Turn over there. This is one parallel passage I want to show you. Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You'll see the relevance of this as we read it together. Maybe we can throw it up on the screen if anybody's back there to do it for me. Ecclesiastes 5, look at verse 1. Guard your steps, 5-1, as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, Ecclesiastes 5.1, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, Ecclesiastes 5.4, Do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God, that was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness 
rather fear God. And then he's going to go, to t- go on to talk about the oppression of the poor, etc. Back to Matthew chapter 5. I don't think from a big picture perspective, Jesus is outlawing all vow taking. We took vows when we got married. You might take a vow in a court of law. You might take a vow when you uh, enter into political office. I don't think that Jesus is saying in a blanket way, that's wrong. You can never take a vow in very formal occasions. But I do think what Jesus is saying is this. If you're gonna make a vow, know that most vows, although a few in the Old Testament were not voluntary, most vows are voluntary. So don't make a vow if you don't need to make a vow. So let's just say, let's use an illustration. Someone meets a businessman on a Monday and says, I, I like these goods and services, and I will uh, flip over to Matthew 19, and this will fill this out. Matthew 19 for a moment. I want these goods and services, and it's Monday, and I'll gladly pay you Friday for the cheeseburger you give me today. Okay? And so Friday comes, and the business owner sees that man and says, I want my money. And he says, oh, no, 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 um, because I made a vow, but I, I didn't make it uh, on the temple. I made it on the gold of the temple. Look at Matthew 23 just so we've got this straight in our minds. Verse 16, this is what Jesus says. More of his politically correct sermon to religious leaders. Woe to you blind guides, 23, 16, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated. So he says, I swore by the temple, but not by the gold, so I don't have to pay you. You fool, you blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, But whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both the temple and by him who dwells within it. Whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Back to Matthew 5. We'll finish it. What is Jesus saying? In the same way that you get the certificate of divorce from your rabbi, you do these slippery vows. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I think they took so help me God out of it. And by the way, I'm crossing my fingers. Or, yes, I'll do this, and I I swear on... uh, the scout promise, the brownie promise, uh, uh, cross my arms and hope to die, shove a needle in my eye. <laughs> Where do we get these things, right? But this is what people do. How many times in a given week in America do people say, I swear to God? And if they're a valley girl, I swear to God, I swear to God. Anyway, and here's what's happening. When, when we stand before the Lord and invoke his name, I swear to God, I will uphold the laws and the constitutions of the United States, Constitution of the United States of America. Oh, Lord, let that be so. Um, I swear that I will be faithful to this woman till death do us part, this man. And with God as my witness, I give you my promise. Now, Jesus was challenged with an oath by the high priest. I adjure you by the name of the living God. Are you the Messiah? Jesus said, yes, it is as you said. Paul took vows in the book of Acts. I don't think that Jesus is saying you can never take a vow, like a Nazarite vow, for example. But I do think what he's saying is do not do flippant, unnecessary vows because you'll get yourself in trouble more than it helping you, amen? But it's, this is not to wiggle out of stuff. Words depend on character. Oaths cannot compensate for poor character. A bad, bad man cannot be believed on his oath, and a good man speaks the truth without an oath, amen? Do you guys remember a day in our country when two men or two women would shake on a deal? It would bind them together with a handshake, When they shook on it, it was binding. 
I will do what I committed to do. Now we have 3,700 page contracts. Have you ever bought something and you're initialing pages, you have no idea. You just signed your children away to the third and fourth generation. <laughs> you're like, I don't care anymore. Right? So you say, well, Pastor Michael, what is Jesus saying then about this topic? Well, take a look, 36 and 37. Nor shall you make an oath by your head. God created your head. He created Jerusalem, etc. You cannot make one hair white or black. Do you know that some of the church fathers believe that that verse outlaws hair dye? So if you've been on aisle 17, I don't know if it's aisle 17 or not, and you got some of that stuff to put a little bit here and a little bit here, you're a sinner. No, just kidding. <laughs> you're like, what? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. <laughs> Now, you can make your hair white with stress and you can make it black with the right kind of dye. But all that is is a cover-up, <laughs> except for the white hairs by stress. So here's how Jesus sums it up. He says, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is uh, of evil. And remember, he is targeting the scribes and Pharisees who were making all kinds of foul, false vows and finding ways to wiggle around the truth with religious-looking stuff. Let your yes be yes. You say yes to some, something, you're a citizen of the kingdom, then do it. Amen? You say, I'm going to be at this place at this time, then do it. If you're two minutes late, there is forgiveness in Christ. Thank God for that. But let your yes be yes. If you say you're gonna do something, kingdom priorities say do it because it reflects our king who is always true to his word, amen? Let me add something else. It hit me last night. We don't talk about this much, but how about your no being no? If you say no to something like, I'm not gonna do that anymore or I'm not gonna let that consume me anymore, I'm not gonna talk like that anymore or treat you like that anymore, then let your no be no. Titus 2 says, the grace of God teaches us to say no, 2.12, to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Jesus says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Some translations say anything else is of the evil one. It could be abstract, it could be personal, but here's the point. The, the original language allows for the evil one being the enemy, who's a deceiver and the father of what? Lies. So we belong to a kingdom of truth and our king says, I want you to be the kind of people that when you say yes, it's yes, and when you say no, it's no. Now we all realize that we need all the grace we can get, amen? We come to the end of another of Jesus' teaching and realize how much we need grace. But the, the God who justifies us, who fulfilled the law, is the God who sanctifies us. And he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can walk out what he's called us to do. You don't have to do this on your own, amen? It's the power of the Spirit sanctifying us, making more like us more like our king that gives us the power to do this. Father, oh, there's been a lot here, and I thank you for the patience of your people, and I thank you for... Everybody trying to be as tuned in as possible and, and put their thinking caps on. And Lord, we, we want to do a good job with reflecting what you had to say, the context, the background, trying to piece scripture with scripture. These are some tough topics, and, and I realize that, but I pray that your grace would flow to your people. We realize that you came for a reason because we've fallen short of these things. We, we thank you for fulfilling the sacrificial system and the moral law. But we know we have a responsibility nonetheless to reflect our king with the things that you say are important, Lord. And it, it is, I suppose, the, the responsibility of every Christian generation to wrestle with these things and see what our king has to say and then to obey you. For when we call you Lord, we're saying that you're a master. When we call you Messiah, we're saying that you're the king.
And so help us be people who, when we say Jesus is Lord, do our best by God's power to walk that out. We all have a long way to go. I have a long way to go, Lord. Thank you for your patience with me, with your people. Thank you for your love, which endures forever. Would you help us in these areas where we might have hurt or even confusion? I pray that you'd bring clarity. I pray where there is need of repentance and redirection and change of heart, that we would be honest with you and say like David, you desire truth in my innermost being. If there was a sacrifice I could give, I'd give it. Something religious I could do, I'd do it. But what you really want is truth in my heart. You want me to love you from my heart. None of us want to play a game. We can fool most of the people most of the time, but we don't fool you, Lord. And for all the religion that's out there, the dead ritual, the plastic stuff, the legalism put on people's shoulders that they could never live up to. Oh, Lord, I pray that our generation would be having a true revival to the living God. His great truth, his great love, his great justice, his mercy and faithfulness. We'd come back to the heart of worship. We'd come back to our king who doesn't want empty ritual. Rather, he wants a heart of love. We often say, Father, in the Christian community that Christianity is not about religion, it's about a relationship. And we can see all the more in this contrast with the religious leaders of the day, at least many of them, that that's all they had. That's all Paul said he had before he was transformed. He, he kept the law outwardly, but he, he knew his heart was wrong. Father, change us where it really matters. Because when the heart changes, the rest will follow. When we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, all the things that we're worried about are taken care of. They flow from a heart in love with the king. As you stay in a moment of reflection, would you say you know the king? Have you made him your Lord? Have you trusted in his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, that he is God in human flesh, that he is Lord? Judge, king, savior. If you haven't done that, you're not sure. This would be a good moment to just turn away from all sin that you're aware of and ask Jesus to be both savior and Lord of your life. And know that when you make that commitment to call him Lord is to call him king. And he'll give you a new beginning. He's already paid the entrance fee in full. And he'll do the work as you surrender more and more. For this precious congregation, Father, any gaps that there may be in their minds or hearts, I pray that you'd fill them in with your truth, with your love. We love you, and we ask all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.